U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by ProBXO, Christoph. A good day, everyone. So we are covering the American Civil War. We are on the last bit of the Western Theater. This is going to be the Carolinas campaign and the end of the war. So are you ready to get underway? Yes, indeed. You look confused. I always look confused. That's my resting face. Oh, okay. Glad we cleared that up. So after Sherman captured Savannah, he was ordered by Grant to take his army on two ships and reinforce the Union armies in Virginia. This is where Grant was bogged down in the siege of Pittsburgh against Robert E. Lee. And Sherman, he had an alternative strategy. He, he persuaded Grant that he should march north through the Carolinas instead, and that way he could do scorched earth on the way up. You know, just like he did on his march to the coast. Yeah, I was thinking uh, when you're a pyromaniac, and you're on a ship, that's, that's a bad mixture. Well, everybody in this time is a pyromaniac. Yeah, that's true. Now, Sherman was very, very interested in targeting South Carolina because this was the first state to secede from the Union. So he figured this would really, really hurt Southern morale. He's, his plan also encompassed that he wanted to bypass the minor Confederate troop concentrations at Augusta in Georgia and in Charleston in South Carolina and reach Goldsboro in North Carolina by March 15th. This is where he would unite with the Union forces commanded by John M. Schofield and Alfred H. Terry. So you know how in Georgia he split his forces to come from multiple directions? Yes. He did this to confuse them, to make sure that they didn't know that his first objective was the state capital in Columbia. I see. He then faced the Army of the Tennessee again, which has already been battered all to heck, and, you know, a lot smaller than it was before. And on February 17th, Columbia sur surrendered to Sherman. Yeah, I know traditionally splitting your army is not necessarily a good thing, but I suppose the Union had such a numerical advantage that it, it probably was just fine. I think you're thinking of Dungeons and Dragons where you don't split the party. Oh, that is also relevant. Yes, you, you don't split the party there either, but I know that there were some initial... Um, there were some instances where Lee split his army in order to attack the Union, but once those plans fell into the hands of the Union, they were able to divide and conquer in a way, whereas if Lee had not split his army, they probably would have been victorious. And so it's risky, because you have fewer fighters in one place. But I think at this point, the Union was so much stronger, and the Confederacy was so battered, like you said, that... Even by splitting the army and having the element of surprise, they really had a lot of things going for them. Well, Lee's mistake in that was that he, first of all, his plans fell into the enemy's hands. Always bad. 
And second, he was splitting it into multiple different areas of operations. All Sherman is doing here is splitting it so he can engulf the same I see. target. So, okay, same objective then. Okay, that's more clear. Thanks, Dale. You're welcome. Now, of course, in Colombia, fires begin, and most of the city is destroyed. So those of you that drink whenever arson happens, you can drink now. Now, of course, the fires were uh, clouded in controversy even up to today because some think that the fires are accidental while others think they are a deliberate act of vengeance. Me, I think it's the firebug. It was done on purpose because, you know, firebugs. They do what they do, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So once Columbia falls, the Confederates, they evacuate Charleston. And on February 18th, Sherman's forces pretty much destroy anything of military value in Columbia. And then the last Confederate seaport with any standing whatsoever in Wilmington surrendered on the 22nd. I have to imagine that was a huge blow to the morale of the Confederacy. Oh, yes. So Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee now is feeling that uh, Beauregard, he, he, he's worthless. He cannot handle the threat from, you know, the Union. So they take Johnson and said, hey, you are now in command of the forces in Carolinas, which included, you know, the last bits of the Army of the Tennessee. So he brought all the forces together and renamed them the Army of the South and then attacked Bentonville in the Battle of the Bentonville, where he tried to defeat one of one wing of Sherman's army. He did not. He was trying to, you know, keep both wings from rejoining one another in uh, Goldsboro. Now, the initial attack overwhelmed the first line of the Union, but Solcombe, who was in charge there, was able to rally his men to resist Johnston until Howard arrived at the battlefield that night. Now, Johnston, he wasn't going to give up. He stayed there for two more days, hoping, you know, to, to beat him, like they did in the Battle of the Kennesaw Mountain. But after a couple of days, he was like, yeah, this is not happening. And he retreats back to Raleigh with Sherman in hot pursuit. On April 11th, Johnson then receives word that General Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse. This made him go, well, I think things are done. And he sends a letter to Sherman requesting terms for surrender. So, traditionally, when the, in the case of Lee surrendering at Appomattox, that signals the end of the war. Is, are there traditionally smaller surrender negotiations like in this case? This seems odd. Every uh, surrender is a different negotiation. The general surrender, you know, it takes time to reach the ears of people further away 
They don't have radio communications like we do now. Right. And you always have, you know, groups that continue to resist even after. I mean, look at the examples of some of the uh, Japanese soldiers after World War II. Yeah, that's true. I think the last, very last Japanese soldier surrendered in the late 70s. Yeah, something like that. After lots of attempted convincing. Right. He was so... Uh, fanatical is not the right word. Uh, loyal to the cause, perhaps? He, yeah, he was so loyal to the to his emperor and to his country that he did not believe that Japan would have surrendered at all. But, yeah, so... But, yeah, terms of surrender from army to army is quite common. So three days after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated on April 18th, Johnston signed a armistice with Sherman at Bennett Place. This is a farmhouse near Durham Station. Now, Sherman, he got himself into a little bit of trouble politically because he offered terms to, of surrender to Johnston that encompassed political issues as well as military issues because he did not get permission from Grant or, you know, the U.S. government. So what issues did he include? That's really unusual. I'm sure, I, well, I don't know. I am sure it had something to do with, like, officer to officer, you're good in my book. You, 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 you're, there'll be no rep repercussions. You can keep your position, yada, 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 crap like that. Got it. Ooh, that would be, yeah, given what happened to everybody else um, that was in any kind of leadership in the Confederacy, that's a no-no. Yeah. So this, of course, created lots of confusion, and the confusion lasted until April 26th. Then Johnson agreed to purely military terms of surrender, which were pretty much almost the same that Lee got at the courthouse. And that's when he formally surrendered his army and all of the Confederate forces, actually, in the Carolinas, the Georgia, and Florida. There were, you know, other battles during this time as well. The A guy named Major General James H. Wilson, who commanded the Cavalry Corps of the Military Division of the Mississippi, he launched a raid in March into central Alabama, and he had orders to destroy the remaining Confederate industry in the region, especially at Elyton and Selma. And the only force there remaining to resist Wilson was a cavalry force under Nathan B. Forrest. Elyton fell to Union forces on March 29th before Forrest was able to get his troops in one place. And Selma was captured on April 2nd after a cavalry battle. So after destroying Selma's factories and railroads, Wilson continued eastward towards Georgia. He wanted to capture the bridge across the Chattanoochee River at Columbus in Georgia. And then he continued on to Macon. On April 21st, he received word from Sherman to, quote, desist from further actions of war and devastation until you hear that hostilities are renewed. So, you know, in modern terms, yo, stop it. Ceasefire. 
Although I do like the use of the word yo, I also like the word desist. So I kind of wish uh, we could hearken back to days of old, but at the same time, what would rap sound like? It would be, it'd be crazy. Yo, desist, ceasefire. <laughs> In mid-March, Major General Edward R.S. Canby, he commanded the military division of Western Mississippi, and he makes a landing near the entrance of Mobile Bay and starts going along the eastern shore to the Banish Fort, where they started a siege on May 27th. On April's Fool's Day, the Union forces, commanded by Frederick Steele, he arrives from an overland route from Pensacola and started besieging Fort Blakely. And then about seven days later, the Union forces started a artillery bombardment on the Spanish fort with 90 field pieces. Whoa. After softening up the defenses, they led a charge with uh, the infantry and just overwhelmed the Confederate defenders. Canby then moves against Fort Blakely the next day, quickly overwhelming that fort as well. These fights force the Confederacy to evacuate Mobile. Once he receives word of Lee and Johnson's surrenders, Lieutenant General Richard Taylor, who commanded the Confederate Department of Alabama, Mississippi, East Louisiana, he officially surrenders his forces to Canby on May 4th, and Forrest officially surrenders on May 9th. Wilson, he takes control of Tallahassee on May 20th, and, and this is the last Confederate state capital east of the Mississippi to be captured. So, Rick, it was the last one to be captured in the Confederacy, including, like, Richmond? I would assume that that probably would have been last. That's interesting. Wilson also takes a detachment of his cavalry, and he says, you know what? Hey, there's President Jefferson Davis. Go get him. And they capture him on May 10th in Georgia, near Irwin, or near Irwinville. Sorry, that ville is very important. So that is the Western Campaign, or the, the Western Theater of Operations. Yeah, that, that was a bit of a whirlwind. That, there was a lot going on there. And then, I mean, there was a bit of East, Eastern uh, stuff as well. That's, oh, that's crazy. So now we are going to move down to the Lower Seaboard Theater. This pretty much encompasses all the mili major military naval operations near the coastal areas of the southern United States, which is Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas, as well as part of the Mississippi River, primarily the southern part. Now, fun little fact, this campaign classification was established by the National Park Service. I wouldn't think that the National Park Service would have anything to do with any kind of military anything. Well, they call these the Lower Seaboard Theater and Gulf Approach Operations. That's, that's curious. That's, I mean, definitely a bit of trivia that I would not have anticipated. So, South Carolina... So much of the war along the South Carolina coast was concentrated on capturing Charleston. 
because of its role as a port for blockade runners. And, you know, the symbolic role of where this war started. Right. One of the earliest battles of the war was fought at Port Royal Sound, south of Charleston. This is where the Union Navy selected this location as a coaling station for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. So, it, so trying to capture Charleston, the Union military tried two approaches. By land, over James or Morris Islands, or through the harbor. But the Confederacy were able to drive back each of these attacks. One of the most famous land attacks was the Second Battle of Fort Wagner, in which the 54th Massachusetts Infantry took. The Union suffered a huge defeat in this battle, losing 1,500 men. Golly. While the Confederacy only lost 175. Still tragic, Dur but, I mean, those numbers yes. are better than 1,500. Yeah. So, during the night of February 24th of 1864, the CSS Huntley made the first successful sinking of a enemy warship by submarine. But, of course, the Huntley was also sunk. Well, we can still claim that as an American uh, accomplishment. Way to go. <laughs> All right, so let's go over some of the battles. Like, the first battle of Charleston Harbor. This happened near Charleston, South Carolina on April 7th. 1863. The units involved were, on the Union side, two ironclads and seven monitors. And on the Confederacy side, two ironclads and 385 land-based guns. That's a lot. Yes. I, how, hmm. I guess we've had some effective land-based weaponry that is able to sink ships i mean that's been going on since the age of exploration but uh i don't know i'm curious where this ends up so please continue well it ends up with somebody losing oh that i anticipated there are a few ties in um in war okay how about this it ends up with the americans losing ah i i yes yes i can see that Especially since both sides are Americans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I thought the Americans also win, though, so, you know. That's true. Pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, the Union was not doing well during the war in late 62 and early 63. Now, even though the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia had been repulsed at Antium, it escaped intact. And that's not good when you, that happens. And they inflicted a major defeat on the Federal Army of the Potomac at Fredericksburg in Virginia. And that army got just put right into disarray. So they did not survive intact. Mm. And in the West, the campaign for control of the Mississippi River was bogged down. So the Confederates had actually managed to retake Galveston. That's right in Texas. Oh, yes. So, the North was getting war-weary, and the fall elections were concentrating on a referendum uh, about the war. So, this was going to swing away from the Republican Party. Interesting to see how history so, is consistent. Yeah. So, of course, the administration, the Lincoln administration, 
began applying a lot of pressure on every all the guys that are in charge of all the different units and armies and stuff, telling them to get out there and win. We need to lift the national spirit. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that there was a politician that for purely political purposes and trying to assure their victory applied pressure to the military in spite of the actual dangers and difficulties they were facing? Yes. Ugh, that's unheard of. Wink, wink. Sorry, continue. Okay, I, 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 I was going to say, which country have you been following? No, it happens all the time. <laughs> this is a sad testament to uh, the power of narcissism, I suppose. So because of all this, the Navy started to want to really go after Charleston. Now, the Charleston of 1863 was only had a limited military significance because the active, center, active centers of, the com of combat were mostly around Virginia and inside the country. So its value for blockade runners was really not much more than, you know, Mobile or Savannah. And, of course, Wilmington was pretty much the number one port for blockade runners. But it was selected as a target because of its symbolic worth, not because of its for its strategic worth. So one of the most vocal guys that wanted this attack to happen was the assistant secretary of the Navy, a guy named Gustavus Vasa Fox. But that's because he had a ulterior motive. He wanted the Navy to be free from the army. So he was not disappointed when the general-in-chief, Henry W. Hollick, was like, I'm not doing this. You're not. No, the army doesn't want this. He was only willing to commit between ten and 15,000 untrained soldiers. Oh, my gosh. That seems like a... It's not very good. I mean, it's a lot of men. There is... What is that quote from Napoleon? Quantity has a quality all its own. But... Yeah. Still, untrained. Well, he, he was doing this so he could exploit any successes made by the Navy. But, you know, untrained soldiers are really not going to do much of anything. Right. So the navies they supported the operation by assigning pretty much all of its armored vessels to the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. This was commanded by Rear Admiral DuPont, and the these vessels included the USS New Ironsides. This would be DuPont's flagship. There was also the new Pasonic class gunboats. These were designed to be improved versions of the USS Monitor. And as they were commissioned, they were sent to South Carolina. So they had seven of these new guys when the attack happened. They also had the experimental armored gunboat, Keokuk. Now, Admiral DuPont, he was not as excited about these armored vessels as a lot of other people were in the Navy. Even though, you know, they could withstand whatever punishment the coastal artillery could 
dish out. It also meant that their offensive capabilities were severely restricted. New Ironsides, she carried 16, but each of the other ones only carried two. Only two? Yep. Were they at least uh, turret-based? Or, I guess, just fixed? This was fairly early on, right? Yeah, this is... 64, 63, 62, 63. Okay. Um, here is a picture. Let me open that up. Here is a picture of the Pasak class monitor. As you can see, this is pretty much just a hull a couple inches above the water with a big round conning tower in the middle, which is where the cannons would be. So whether it was turreted or not, um, more, well, more than likely it wasn't turreted. What they would do was just position the cannons where they needed it on a track system. That makes sense. During yeah. this time. So these boats only had two cannons. They had one 15 inch and one 11 inch gun. And the Keokuk had two 11 inch guns. These were larger than the typical 32 pound cannons that would be used against them from the guys on shore but their rate of fire was much slower because it took seven minutes to swab reload and aim between shots wow now dupont he didn't have any alternative plans so he you know made do with what he had he decided he was going to concentrate on how to preserve his ship, to preserve his ships. And, you know, so he's going in here, going in with the battle with a defeatism attitude. So that's not going to be good. No, never, never a good starting point. So on the Confederate side, the General PGT Beauregard, you love that. I do. It's <laughs> such a great name, even though later he was... Relieved of duty for uh, ineffectiveness. That name goes a long way. Yeah. He was in command of the Confederate Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And he led the rebel forces at Charleston at the time of the bombardment of Fort Sumter that opened the war. So that means he was intimately familiar with the fortifications surrounding the city. Now, the batteries, they got set up under his supervision to assault the fort, and they were incorporated into the harbor defenses afterwards. Now, the guys that replaced him, Major General John C. Pember and Brigadier General Rowell at Roswell S. Ripley, they did make some additions in the year and a half that Beauregard you know, was on vacation, I guess, or you know, assigned to other things. But, you know, the basic defenses were thanks to Beauregard. The fortifications that had been set up around the harbor were very, very well placed to repel attacks from the ocean. The most seaward guns were placed in Battery Wagner, often called Fort Wagner, and Battery Gregg, which both of these were on Morris Island. Near to them, there was a man-made island. This was Fort. Sumter. Then there was Fort Moultrie and uh, its batteries across the harbor on Sullivan's Island. 
So these form the first and outer defensive ring. Then there was a second ring. This was Fort Johnston and Battery Glover on James Island, and Fort Ripley and Castle Picnery in the harbor. And then the White Point Battery at the southern end of the city itself. Then there's the third ring. This was several battle several batteries on Cooper and Ashley Rivers in Charleston. These were intended to protect against land assault on the city. So all in all, this was 385 land-based guns. That is significant. That is so many forts. As you were going through the entire defensive system, I thought to myself, is this something surely that was made specifically for the Civil War, given that we're a couple years in? Or were these already in place? I mean, given that it's a, a harbor, you're going to have some piracy and you need to defend yourself as a, a port town. No, this was built up in the year and a half when the war st- between when the war started and this happened. That's, but that's not all the defenses. It's still very impressive. There was also shipping barriers spanning the harbor. There was a row of pylons that stretched from Fort Johnson to Fort Ripley in the middle. Now, these were ineffective because storms and strong tides ripped out major sections of these defenses. So they tried to put a boom between Fort Sumner and Moultrie. This was formed by 20-foot lengths of railroad iron floated by large timbers bound together by chains and then anchored at intervals to the bottom. But this was also ineffective because the tides broke the chains. Seems like a lot (laughs) of uh, nature at play. I guess nature was on the side of the Union. Nature doesn't give a crap. (laughs) So they put a rope obstruction that was meant to foul the propellers of any vessels coming in. So despite all the effort that went into putting all these barriers in the harbor itself, or in the, you know, inlet, yeah, in the harbor, the defenders were like, that's not going to stop them. Mm -hmm. Even the torpedoes that we we put out there, that ain't going to work. Now, DuPont, on the other hand, did not know that the water defenses were so flawed. So he was very concerned about the barriers and torpedo when he was making his preparation for the attack. Now, the naval contingent for the Confederacy were the CSS Chichora and the CSS Palmetto State. These were two armored gunboats. They were ready to go if the Union neared the city. They would only be used in extreme circumstances because they were not fast. They did not pose a threat to the monitors because they were not monitors. They were armored gunboats. So, Right, yeah, that's a big difference. But even though the harbor defenses weren't very good, the, the, the defenses for Charleston were very, very strong. And Beauregard knew, though, that he would have to prepare for the worst because you know, 
prepare for the worst, hope for the best. So he made the decision to defend the city street by street if necessary. He wrote to the governor and said, quote, As I understand, it is the wish of all people and government that the city shall be defended to the last extremity. So now we get into the battle itself. Are you ready for this? I, I, I'll say yes. We'll see what happens. So DuPont chooses to attack in the early part of April because he wanted to use the spring tides. Yeah, makes sense. So as the date for the attack was nearing, they brought in a new toy, Minesweepers. Ooh. The Navy called on a guy named Eric, John Erickson. He's the guy who designed the monitors in the first place. And he, they were like, you know what? We need some sort of defense against torpedoes. So he came up with a raft type of structure made up of heavy timbers that could be attached to a ship's bow. Each of these rafts carried grappling hooks intended to snag the mooring lines of enemy torpedoes. It also carried a torpedo of its own, so it could just blast its way through the obstructions. It's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, two of these were built and sent to South Carolina in time for the attack. So they considered the steering and handling problems that, you know, attaching a big raft to the nosier boat would introduce. The captains of DuPont's ships were not willing to do it. <laughs> what? Not expose themselves to dangerous torpedoes? Well, not putting these things on the front of their boats, making them unwieldy to pilot. Oh, yeah, I didn't even consider that. The torpedo that was on top of these rafts were very worrisome in itself because collisions between ships in the narrow channel with currents that they were not familiar with were, going, were expected to happen. In come John Rogers of the Wicowin. He was persuaded to carry the raft on his ship, but without the torpedoes. Now, after it was secured and he started going, the raft hit his ship so badly that Rogers was like, no, cut it loose, cut it loose, get it the hell out of here. And they did not clear away any torpedoes. Well, it's important that he tried. Yeah, I guess. At some point, you do have to measure the risk. It's like, yes, this would be good for all of our side seagoing ships to be able to enter this harbor. However, uh, if my ship gets sunk in the process and we clear nothing, then it's just a big fat waste. Yeah, but I mean, new technology, you got to test it out somehow. True. Well, I can see that their priority would be their men and their ship. And so... Yes, new technology needs to be tested, but at the same time, they, they are responsible for the, what the new technology is attached to. Hmm. So the fleet assembles at the mouth of the harbor on April 5th. DuPont sends a buoy schooner, the USS Admiral DuPont, and the survey vessel Bib. And they sent Keokuk with them 
to mark the entrance of to the channel with buoys. The weather for that day was not very good. It was hazy, so navigation was difficult. So DuPont looked around and was like, you know what, let's try tomorrow. Now, the ne next morning, the haze was still there. Sea fog, I mean, come on now. But by noon, it was clear. So this signal was given. Attack! So four monitors, they lead the way. The U.S. says, we awaken. Getting underway first. Once they get underway, well, what, they, they, they uh, raise anchor and find that their anchor is fouled by grappling hooks from the torpedo raft. Oh, no. So this delays the start by about an hour. She then could only make three knots. So the rest of the column had to follow her at three knots. That's awful. <laughs> that is really slow. So the second in the column was the USS Passac. The third was the USS Montauk. And then the USS Patapasco. The next line were the flagship, New Ironsides. Behind the flagship came the monitors, USS Catskill, the USS Nantucket, and the USS Nohant. It's a lot of ships. And the, yeah. And then the Kyok came up last. So, two hours go by between when they got underway before the first shots were fired. In that two hours, they found that the new Ironsides handled like absolute garbage because of the current and shallow water. So, she was forced to stop at anchor just to stop her from being run aground. Whoa. So, just about that time that they anchored, the lead monitors were coming under fire. And the, the four boats behind her were able to pass her with difficulty. Now, the rebels, they could not have chosen a better place for new Ironsides to anchor. <laughs> because she was directly over a 3,000-pound electrically triggered torpedo. No kidding. That would be activated by closing a switch on shore. They hit the switch. Nothing happened. Oh, man. What a disappointment that must have been. Now, they think two things could have happened to cause the failure. The ordnance wagon had broken the wire by driving over them. Or the wires were just too long. And they did not have... They weren't pumping enough electricity to be able to create a spark to detonate the charge. Now, the other ships were being pummeled. Weokin had advanced to the line of buoys that uh, Captain Rogers thought might mark torpedoes. So he swerved from the channel and stopped to figure out what he was going to do next. Once he stopped, there was an underwater explosion. And this hit the vessel. Rogers, he thinks it's a torpedoes, but historians believe that more than likely it was an explosive shell from the fort. Whether there were, it was a torpedo or an exploding shell, there was really no damage to the ship. But 
Since she left the channel and stopped, everybody behind her were like, what the hell is going on? And so that meant that whatever battle plan DuPont had at this time completely collapsed. The intense fire that the ships received from the shore was keeping them further away from the fort than the Admiral had wanted them. Which means that the return fire was inaccurate. So accuracy, even at this time, you know, not the best anyway. So this really didn't determine the result. What determined the result was the sheer disparity in firepower. In the course of the two-hour fight, the Confederate forces got off more than 2,000 shots. Golly, that is a lot of shots. 520 hit. The Union fleet, they only fired off 154. Hmm. Now, the armor did its job and protected the crews, but several ships were damaged enough that it impaired their fighting abilities, like, you know, jammed turrets and gunport stoppers. Now, the Kyuk was hit the worst, because she's the one with the turrets. Oh. She was hit 90 times. Wow. 19, 19 of these were below the waterline. So I'm picturing the situation. You've got this bay, all these land-based guns shooting at all these ships. And from what I understand, these monitors, they're pretty low in the water. Like a lot of it's under the water and then it's kind of just above the, the waterline. And I'm trying to figure out how you would communicate, especially in a battle scenario. Like you've got, you're defending against all these land-based shots. How does one ship tell another ship, hey, I'm in trouble, or go around, or there's no radio? I know there's semaphore, but you really can't, it doesn't seem safe. You know what I mean? How would that happen? You also have things like whistles, trumpets, you know, anything to make a loud, piercing noise. Okay. And, I mean, people are on deck anyway, fighting. That's true. So, semaphore. Okay. I was thinking about how the armor would protect the ship, generally. But, of course, not necessarily the men on the, the deck of the ship. Right. That also just depends on the configuration of the boat. All right. Yeah, when you said uh, it had, the, the battle had broken up just because of uh, the lead ship having to sail away, I was wondering... No, the, lead sh the lead ship stopped because they didn't know what... The heck was going on? Oh, right, on. right. Sorry. That's okay. I'm just trying to picture it in my mind, and you're helping me understand how they were able to talk amongst themselves. Hmm. And you know, I'm sure rude finger gestures were also part of that. Oh yeah. I'm sure they had uh, spy glasses so they could see each other's fingers quite clearly. Yes. So the Kiuk is withdrawn, barely staying afloat. So, by this time, the tide has now turned. So, Admiral DuPont was like, you know what, guys? Let's try again tomorrow. Go ahead and let's withdraw. So, in DuPont's official report, he asserted that he fully intended to renew the attack the next day. But all his captains were like, no way, dude. That sucked. The Keokuk <laughs> sank during the night. No one went down with her. They were able to get everybody off. 
two to three of the monitors had sustained damage that would keep her keep them out of action for a number of days, if not weeks. And so all the captains were like, there's nothing that's going to happen other than us getting knocked out, keeping the battle going. Because even if we knock out Fort Sumter, there's still like 300 yeah. guns around us. And we didn't even get through the first defensive ring. That's crazy. So, yeah, the, the battle doesn't begin anymore. The Union loses an ironclad, and Fort Sumter had sustained damage that was repaired very quickly. So based on the beginning of this episode, where we have Sherman pushing to the sea and eventually taking this city, right? Eventually. Yeah. So that, That's later in the war. Yeah, much. Oh, this is years later. Um, that seems to be the only, based on these defenses, the only way they could have, unless they just had incredibly maneuverable ships and uh, quite a lot of them to be able to attack from the sea, based on these defenses. Well, remember, by the time Sherman comes along, the Union or the Confederacy had been so ground down. Yeah. Just manpower, you know, equipment, all that stuff was li very limited. So even. If they would have attacked from the sea, maybe the number of shots they would have shot would have been 10%. Who knows? There, there's no way to know. By, by the time it's ta the city's taken, it's the end of the war anyway. Mm -hmm. So casualty count was actually very low, even with the huge amount of fire. There was only one man killed in the fleet, a guy named Quartermaster Edward Cobb. And there were 21 casualties. On the Confederate side, five were killed and eight were wounded. So, the aftermath of all of this, the Secretary of the Navy, Wellis, he was like, what? <laughs> what? Right. What? The small casualty list with DuPont's defeatism going in led him to believe that the first attack was not, you know, Elegant. As effective yeah. as it should have been. Right. Now, his criticism did get a little bit lighter when John Rogers, who was known as a competent and aggressive officer, sided with DuPont. Oh. Rogers was like, Charleston could not be taken just by naval assault. This had to be a combined Army, Navy operation. If only they had 15,000 untrained troops. <laughs> so, well, this is like, okay, I agree with you now. Charleston could not be taken by naval forces alone. But the die was already cast. Oh. These guys were now enemies. Wellis fires him on June 3rd, places him with Rear Admiral Andrew H. Foote. Now, Foote, as we had gone over before, he was wounded during the Battle of Fort Donelson, so he's, he never recovered from it. He died before he could get to his new command. So, Wellis then very reluctantly gave it to Rear Admiral John A. Delgren. Now... The captains of the fleet, they fared a lot better than DuPont did. 
None of them suffered professionally for their participation in this, you know, failed attack. And seven of them actually became rear admirals, eventually. I guess they did their duty. It was not a matter of the ship's action, but more the the strategy behind the overall effort. So I could see mm -hmm. why that's how it went down. Yeah. The monitors, the new Ironsides, they continued to take part in the blockade of that city. And the you know how the uh Keokuk was went down? She sank in shallow water. So her smokestacks were still above the water. So they knew where she was. And a guy named Adolphus W. Lacoste, who was a civilian in Charleston, was hired by the Confederate government to salvage the two 11-inch guns from the boat. And they were able to work by night to escape the notice of the blockaders to recover them. That's pretty cool. I mean, I can only imagine trying to work at night in a way that does not draw attention from any light would have drawn attention from the ships. And so that's very impressive. Yeah, they did very good. So that is the first battle of Charleston Harbor. Well, all right. We made it, Dale. How you feeling about that? Yeah, it's okay. This I, I, I'd love to... History, <laughs> I love. And strategy, I love. And seeing it all come together is really fascinating. But then you're like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> it's always a little depressing, but at the same time, interesting. So, normal. I feel normal. Mm. All right. So, we are going to honor one of our fallen angels now with our partners at HeroCars.us. We're going to honor Chief Petty Officer Christian M. Pike. His hometown was Peoria, Arizona. He served with the CTT-1781 SEAL Team 5 Naval Special Warfare Group 1. He received the Bronze, Bronze Star Medal with Valor and a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was March 13, 2013, killed in action in Maiwand District, Afghanistan. He was 31. So, cryptologic technician, technical chief, Christian M. Pike, was born in Berlin, Germany in 1981, thousands and thousands of miles from American shores. But he discovered at an early age he was part of a family that had a distinguished legacy of service within the United States military. His maternal grandfather had served in, the in World War II. His uncle, who became a major influence in his life, retired as a colonel in the Green and his mother, Diana, spent over a decade in the U.S. Army's cryptologic service. His mother's duty assignments took the family to Vint Hill Farms in Warrington, Virginia, Fort Meade, Maryland, and finally to Peoria, Arizona. And as a student at Peoria High School, Christian pursued a variety of hobbies and interests, including cars and ceramics. He graduated in 2000 and went delayed entry in the United States Navy in 2001, joining the long line of family members who served the nation. After basic training at Great Lakes, Illinois, he took advanced technological retraining at the Naval Training Center 
in Cory Station, Pensacola, Florida, to become an electronic warfare technician, which has since been designated cryptologic technician technical. His initial tour of duty was aboard the USS Cleveland LPD-7, making multiple Western Pacific deployments afloat. In July 2007, he reported to Navy Information Operations Command San Diego. During this tour, he supported Navy cryptologic operations in the Pacific and volunteered to deploy to Iraq in support of Marine combat operations. In 2011, he reported to Naval Special Warfare Support Activity 1 in Coronado, California, from which he deployed in March 2013 to Afghanistan, assigned to Echo Platoon, SEAL Team 5 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. As a highly trained specialist, Chief Pike's job was to use a wide range of finely honed cryptologic skills to gain critical intelligence on real-time enemy movements and actions. As was the case with everything he did in life, on the battlefield, Christian exhibited a passion for his work and his efforts played a critical role in helping his unit to achieve their objective and save lives. Chief Pike's longtime friend, Petty Officer John P. Goodson, noted that, quote, he knew how to get the best out of someone. On March 10th, 2013, Chief Pike and his unit found themselves in a fierce battle with a large number of insurgents. Before making contact with the enemy, Christian was able to provide a warning of their approach. Despite this knowledge, the group was badly outnumbered, and during the ensuing firefight, Christian was seriously wounded. He was evacuated and airlifted to Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany, but died days later. From the time he was growing up until his final moments, Chief Petty Officer Christian Pike remained true to his family's legacy of service and sacrifice. His devotion to his fellow service members and, and the finest traditions of the United States Navy never faltered. His was a life exemplified by honor, devotion to duty, and the unbridled joy and happiness that he brought to his family and friends. At Christian's memorial service, Diana Pike noted with great pride that her son had, quote, led a life he chose. He was so happy, and happiness is all any mother would want for her children. He loved his job, he loved the Navy, and he loved his team. For his heroic achievement in connection with combat operations against Chief Pike was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star with Valor. He was the first SA-1 service member to be killed in combat while supporting Operation Enduring Freedom. So, Chief Petty Officer Christian M. Pike, thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph, would you like to take us out? Oh, by all means, thank you very much. So, uh, first, thanks for listening. You, uh, you've made it to the end of another incredible episode, so thank you for joining us. Um, if you would like to get a hold of us, you can email us at uh, usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to follow us on Twitter or reply to us on Twitter, you can find our Twitter handle as at usnhistorypod. Feel free to do that. Uh, also, please join the Discord server. Um, the link to that will be in the show notes. And the thing that I forgot last time was that we are on YouTube. So mosey on over to YouTube and check us out there too. Um, there should also be links to the hero cards and merchandise. You know, if you'd like to support us, that would be fantastic. So is that everything, Captain? I always forget yeah. something. No, that's good. All right. Well, that worked out. So as always, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. Bye.
U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank <laughs> you.